Welcome to the SSI Orbit Podcast, a forum where we explore the ever-growing ecosystems of self-sovereign identity. And I'm your host, Matsur Glode. In today's episode, I'm joined by Paul Knowles, an individual who defines himself as a semantic nerd. So Paul does all sorts of work in the decentralized identity space, but notably, he's the head of the advisory council at the Human Colossus Foundation. He's the convener of the Trust Over IP's Input and Semantics Working Group. He also acts as head of communications at the Sovereign Foundation. So Paul is the innovation lead behind the Master Mouse Model, a conceptual model for a dynamic data economy, which is a safe and secure data sharing economy. He's also the inventor of the Overlays Capture Architecture, OCA, and the main spearhead behind the Blinding Identity Taxonomy, both of which facilitate a unified data language so that harmonized data can be utilized for improved data science, statistics, analytics, and other meaningful services. So without further ado, here's the conversation with Paul Knowles. Enjoy. And we're on. Paul, how's it going? Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Looking forward to the podcast. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this too. Um, many different people have spoken to me about some of the work that uh, you and the Human Colossus Foundation are doing uh, within the foundation, but with uh, different community initiatives as well over the past little while. So um, I've been quite interested in the work you're doing and looking forward to just going a little deeper into this uh, with you today. So thanks for doing this. No, sure. No pleasure. So when I started kind of looking into your background of how you got to what you're doing now, it, it seems like you had early, I don't know if it's early on in your career, if it's a passion or stuff you still do now, but there's a lot of interest and activity uh, in the music industry. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I, I've, I've always had a bit of a, a dual career uh, in, uh, in music and, and the pharmaceutical industry. So like, uh, like a lot of people in the music industry, uh, you kind of need a second job sometimes to keep, keep, uh, keep your passion going. Uh, so my, uh, um, my crux was uh, was the pharmaceutical industry, um, but yes, it, uh, in the music industry. Um, well, take it step back a step. My uh, my degree at university was in IT, um, and uh, right after university, I did an audio engineering degree um, in London and uh, learned how to work with the the big mixing desks in recording studios. And uh, from there, I, I started working for a couple of recording studios, um, you know, getting to, uh, to understand uh, the trade as, a, as an audio engineer. Um, and I kind of fell into um, private events uh, through my music industry um, career. And I ended up doing um, showcases for international artists traveling into the UK uh, at, uh, at the Gibson showroom. So, you know, Gibson guitars, they have uh, um, had some showrooms in London. So whenever anyone decent was coming through, I'd put on a showcase for the UK music industry. And, uh, and then that, that would usually kind of kick off their UK tour. Um, so through that, uh, I ended up um, one of the one of the artists that came through was a, a an Indian artist called Raghu Dixit. Um, who uh, was actually the highest selling independent artist in India outside of Bollywood. Uh, and I put on one of these showcases for him um, and uh, basically ended up through that, ended up co-managing him for a while. Um, 
and uh, yeah, that was uh, that kind of kept me busy, and uh, you know, I got to fly around the world a little bit with him. Um, but I guess it was that journey uh, that kind of started um, uh, started getting me into the data space at the same time. So I, I created a uh, a platform um, called the International Music Community. Um, and the idea of the platform was really to introduce uh, up and coming artists to music industry professionals, but using data to build those algorithms. So for instance, uh, you know, an artist would, we get all their social media um, uh, traffic and then kind of uh, put that into an algorithm and then hook them up with uh, industry professionals that had worked with uh, artists of a similar kind of level. Uh, and it was an interesting space. Um, we ended up white labeling that platform. Um, and a lot of the music industry conferences really liked it because uh, as you can imagine in the panels, you've got you know the president of, uh, of Warner Brothers or something on the panel uh, and they don't wanna be uh, bombarded with uh, contacts from baby artists. So through this kind of uh, uh, tiering thing that we'd built within the platform, I was able to protect the identity of the, um, the music professionals at the high end um, but at the same time, they could look down into the filter to find the kind of up and coming artists that they were looking for. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of, that got me kind of into the data space in music. Um, and at the same time, I'd always had this parallel career in, in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, in data management and also statistical analysis. So that was kind of paying the bills as I was doing all of the music stuff. Um, and that's really kind of how I, be, how I became uh, so interested in semantics, I suppose. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, that's kind of how, how it all started. Uh, my journey into, into SSI was uh, really through that algorithm um, uh, thing within the music platform, um, because I wanted a way of authenticating when an industry professional said that they worked with Rod Stewart, or something like that. I wanted some way of authenticating that information. And that's really when I kind of got into SSI and uh, you know, uh, decentralized uh, authentication and key management and stuff. So yeah. That's, that's super <laughs> interesting. Yeah, as you were explaining your marketplace space, I don't know if a marketplace solution, but connecting the up and coming artists or uh, musicians with labels and so forth. I was just right, right away, just my head going to credentials and showing proofs and just uh, doing matchmaking, which I guess the, the way the platform had been built before kind of self-sovereign identity, you could see a next evolution of this or growing into its own ecosystem solution potentially, right? Using verifiable credentials. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the platform was an incredibly federated platform um, when I built it, because I just uh, didn't know that SSI existed. So as soon as I found that, ecosystem then i kind of tore up the rule book and said ah, this isn't going to work i have to rebuild it <laughs> yeah but but i guess you're, you're at the same time you're definitely solving significant problems with the way it was built and i'm sure it still does right it's just now looking at hmm, now this this type of thing is possible we could explore all these new kind of business opportunities with this um that's what at least gets me excited uh, every day when i get up and look at the the self-sovereign identity stuff yeah absolutely uh, yeah and, th and then, so um, working in pharma, it, it seems like big data is just crucial to, to pharma, like big data and just your, your identity management at the core too. But um, 
Is that what really got you thinking a little more about data, the data structures and how to really kind of, um, um, is it, it's just, it's all about in pharma, I need to have very solid data inputs, but if I want to be able to share results and share it across multiple parties, and I, I think you were in, it was in clinical testing uh, as well, right? That, that yes. really got you thinking about the structure of data a lot more? Yes, absolutely. Uh, um, I mean, one of the first jobs I had in the pharmaceutical industry was uh, actually data entry for, for the, uh, you know, they had the um, clinical report forms, which are all handwritten. And I'd have oh, to yeah. kind of enter that into the system. And, you know, in those days, it was it was really dodgy. You'd have all sorts of uh, doctor's notes and comments, and you're entering all of that, which is obviously full of PII information and dangerous yeah. data. So, you know, it's uh, so it, it wasn't uh, nearly as strict as it is now. Um, but, yes, it kind of did get me thinking about semantics very early. Um, you know, obviously for all those freeform text fields and stuff, bringing in predefined entries and, you know, putting some structure around data so that uh, it becomes useful for machine reading and analytics and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, and really, um, you know, one of the pain points with, uh, with clinical data capture is, uh, you know, when you work on two sister trials, uh, trying to aggregate that data together at the end of uh, at the end of the process, it was it was always little things that would break that pooling process. Uh, things like um, you know maybe the maybe the same attribute had uh, different formatting uh, in each study, or the the length of the attribute was different in each study, so that when you aggregated it, you know the data would truncate. And these were kind of these are pain points that are still going on today in the in in the in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so that's really kind of where I started uh, really delving hard into semantics and trying to f find you know new new ways of capturing data, different architectures, all that sort of stuff to try and get get some of those pain points uh, ironed out. Got it. Yeah, I, I um. A long time ago, I spent some time working in um, in a clinic, and we, we conducted clinical trials. Um, it was a l later stage trials on like on patients that that would come in for the trials, and I, I did all sorts of different stuff in this clinic. But I was more, I guess, on the the input side. Like I, I was managing the operation and the intake of uh, of the drug that was being administered, and the blood sampling and the testing and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But it was it was kind of more on on the input side of things it wasn't on kind of the data and the analysis side of things and so yeah. so th that that seems that's really how you're looking at kind of the inputs and semantics it's that's the two sides right uh, of this how, how do you describe inputs and semantics to to, to someone yeah sure um yeah, well, the, the, the easiest way to think about it is, uh, you know, inputs, what, what is being uh, um, inputted into a, a digital system or ecosystem and uh, semantics, you know, what is providing context and meaning to the information that's being entered into a system. Those are kind of the, the two main differences. Um, another way to look at it, it would be data entry versus data capture. So, uh, oh, you know, when you just say pure data entry, that uh, that's kind of your, uh, you know, the the key the keys that you enter on your keyboard into a system, but really to bring anything, any context or meaning, uh, it relies on data capture. So when you're you enter something and you need to capture it into a into a schema structure or something like that. So, you know, that's where you have all your formatting and your machine, uh, you know, your predefined entries, your human readable labels. 
the context, uh, the uh, the metadata of the schema, all that sort of stuff. So all of that rich information that brings uh, contextual meaning to the data that's been uh, inputted. Um, so on one side, the the data inputs is. Uh, on, on the input side, you want to know that the data has come from an authenticable source, um, whereas on the input side, it's more about making sure that the uh, the context and the sem semantics around the data, uh, those constructs are immutable, so that uh, any any actor interacting with any of those uh, objects uh, knows that uh, um, you know that the the, uh, the the data capture structures are 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 the same for everybody. And does this go and you had a nice illustration of kind of semantics and inputs um, kind of a diagram you had and you started splitting everything up into both of them. Um, does this go all the way down like if you're looking at kind of the, um, the different inputs through credentials, does that push all the way through to attributes does that push all the way through to like deeper objects. Um, and it definitely seems that with I guess in the self-sovereign identity space, like entering with that mindset, if these things are needed, you must have realized pretty quickly that, oh crap, like for, for this to actually take off, like there's a lot of this infrastructure that needs to be in place. Yeah, uh, I mean, as soon as you're talking about a decentralized ecosystem, uh, you know, it kind of, uh, you, you are looking at a, a lot of innovation to, to enable that whole space to work. Uh, I mean, one way that I would say to people is that, you know, you've got, or you've almost got to treat the entire data economy as one company. So, you know, within a company, you would have a, a, a data analyst group or something like that, uh, you know, plus uh, maybe something that's more, uh, you know, groups that are more geared towards marketing or, or whatever. These sorts of differences within a, an organization, they work quite well. But so as soon as you go into a decentralized space, you know, it's where do you categorize things in a, in a totally decentralized space so that you have communication throughout the entire data ecosystem? Uh, so, I mean, really that semantics, that, that model that you're talking about, um, I think the official term for it is the, the model of identifier states uh, at the Human Colossus uh, Foundation, because of the shape of it, we call it the rugby ball model. <laughs> yeah, so that uh, is what it looks like. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, but really, uh, I built that model uh, really because the the um, the decentralized identity uh, folks um, they were overlooking semantics, I think, and um, you know, obviously, with my data management background, I wanted to get some kind of model for them to understand the importance of semantics. And that, you know, when you talk about uh, um, decentralized key management solutions, that you're really only looking at half of the puzzle. Uh, that puzzle is all about, so, you know, making sure that uh, data comes from an authentic source, but uh, regarding all the immutable semantics and stuff, that's the other half of the model. I call that the semantics domain. Um, so yeah, that models uh, that that's that's been fun. I mean, and that took a little while to kind of get down to the that's... nitty gritty of the the dualism between every component within each half of that model. So, for instance, you know, when you talk about an an, an attribute in a schema on the input side, that's a claim within a credential. So, basically, the input side is really about real data, and the semantic side is about uh, you know the constructs that were used. Uh, to put context into that that data data inputs, yeah. So I guess what, one of the you're involved in many different communities. One of them, which we've kind of um, 
um, we, we've seen each other in, in different working groups and you, you run your own uh, working group in there um, in the trust over IP. Um, how, how does this model fit into the trust over IP stack? Because I, I think there's different um, there's different types of organizations or people that are playing at different levels in the trust over IP stack. So mm -hmm. if, for example, you could have people just playing at the layer one, they're building public identity utilities. You could have other companies like, like the company I represent that is playing more at the top. Like we're trying to, we're enabling ecosystem solutions to be built. Mm -hmm. But uh, just like there is a governance layer across the stack, it seems like what you're bringing here through inputs and semantics needs to be taken into consideration across the stack, I, I would think. So uh, how does that fit into the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, it's really just a different vantage point um, of, 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 you know, it's still a full ecosystem. So with the, the dual stack at Trust over IP, you're looking at, um, uh, governance versus technology across uh, the four layers that you mentioned, right from utility at layer one, right up to the ecosystems at layer four. And that gives you a fairly big picture of, of uh, like a, a data economy from, but, but only from a governance versus technology perspective. The, uh, the inputs and semantics group is really just a different vantage point. Um, thinking uh, more about what is entered into a system and uh, the, the meaning of, of, of the data that you're capturing and stuff like that. So it's still a, a totally full model, um, but it's complementary to, to the dual stack. Um, you know, I would suge suggest that, uh, you know, d data entry and data capture is valid for all four layers. Uh, and then at, at, at each layer, it's really about how you're capturing that data to make sure that, uh, um, you know, it's 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 not so much about the, the what you're capturing at the time. It's kind of thinking a little bit beyond that thinking. Uh, so, for instance, with all the, the vaccine stuff, uh, you know, it's great if your apps can work for contact tracing and all that sort of stuff. Great. But then the way that I think about data is, OK, so in the pandemic, if you have like the World Health Organization, how can we make this data useful for their uh, processes and their their analytics at their end, so that they can get some like real real time uh, analytics to see how the how the pandemic is responding. Um, Got yeah, it. so that yeah, so I think there's always a, a broader context sometimes than than some of the uh, some developers sometimes think. Yeah, and. Um... So, so you, you approached this through um, the Human Colossus Foundation. What, what was kind of your your steps to forming this? Like, what, what was your journey of starting this uh, organization, and, and why have you structured it the way you've you've structured it? Yeah, uh, well, really, the foundation uh, it, it really started because of Overlay's capture architecture. Um, um, at the time, um, so that that foundation was founded uh, well. It was founded by three of us, myself, uh, Robert Mitwicky, and, and Philippe Page. But the idea of it really kicked off when I met Robert. So Robert's a deep stack uh, uh, developer, um, but he's an interesting developer. He's, uh, he, he's always got a very broad perspective on, on the things that he's building. Uh, we kind of uh, hit it off immediately when I showed him Overlay's capture architecture. And initially we had, uh, built an innovation hub at a at a at a, at a, a proprietary company called Dativa, um, and uh, but then we soon realized that well we were building out OCA in that environment that it it had to be open source, um, 
and uh, and and through and by that time, with uh, we'd, we'd also started uh, developing um, a model called uh, the the master mouse model, um, which is a, a, a kind of a conceptual model of what a dynamic data economy would look like. Uh, and that was really all spearheaded through uh, through the characteristics of, of overlays capture architecture. Um, so yes, the, the foundation and, and really the reason we built the foundation was uh, we knew that OCA was going to be an important part, um, but we and we want and we knew that what they were doing with the SSI and in, in uh, you know hyperledger areas and hyperledger indie that was an important space for authentic. Um, a, a provenance chain, if you like. Um, so it was really about taking these different parts and, and trying to have a foundation where we could knit some of these components together uh, without having to disrupt too much of what was going on in those communities. We could kind of do it within our own uh, foundation. Everything we build is totally open source. So, um, you know, as soon as we've done a proof of concept or, uh, you know, we've knitted some components together for the benefit of, of the economy, then people can we can showcase that and people can just pick up those components and integrate them into their own solutions. Yeah. Is it very so then is the stuff that's being produced by the foundation like like the overlays capture architecture, which was was kind of the starting point? Is it all very use case oriented or is it more just generic frameworks that uh, just need mm -hmm. to be customized? Yeah, no, that's a totally generic um, yeah. everything. Yeah. So um, you know, one of the one of the components we're developing at the moment is a trusted digital assistant. Um, so that's kind of a like a deeper a deeper um, component into the stack than a traditional digital wallet, if you like. Um, and uh, you, you're probably aware of uh, Kerry. I don't know if you've come across Kerry. So yeah, key, and it's, it seems like um, a lot of the. Um, at least in, in the seminar you threw, you had Sam Smith uh, that was involved in this. Like we're, we're personally quite um, excited. Well, we're quite excited about Kerry, but we're also quite excited just about the network of networks uh, concept. So, so th those yeah. fit in nicely together. Uh, it seems like we're, we're quite aligned on that. Yeah, yeah. So Kerry is a very interesting architecture because you know with a data e ecosystem, you can really go two different ways. You can you know, you can either have your root of trust being a node on the network. So, um, you know, whether that's sovereign or Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever, that kind of pro provides a root of trust. But what Kerry uh, um, promises to enable, and I say promises because it's still being developed as we speak, um, you could change your true uh, your root of trust because it's a ledger it's a ledgerless um, solution. So your root of trust could be be what we call a trusted digital assistant, which is a component on your mobile phone. And the importance of doing it that way is, is because uh, you avoid all this uh, potential network lock-in. So when, you, when, you, when some people are building on Hyperledger Fabric, others on Ethereum and stuff, um, you could potentially get into these um, interoperability issues uh, with the way DIDs are currently. Um, as because you know with the decentralized identifiers you have this method space uh, which uh, usually gives you the location of, of where the identifier is housed so if it's a d 
DID colon SOV that suggests it's on the sovereign network. There's there's plenty of those ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's like 87 different yeah. methods. So so it's it's not great for interoperability, but what Kerry allows is if you if you have the identifier as a component on your mobile phone, then you can suddenly you can interact with any network. Uh, you're not locked into those networks. So that's a really interesting uh, technology that uh, we're going to be delving delving hard into into at the Human Colossus Foundation for sure. So the the way we look at kind of the evolution, or the, the way I look, uh, this is my perspective of the, the evolution of the self sovereign identity stack is we're at a point where there needs to be a lot more intelligence built into to agents to really create create more value. And that, is that kind of what your digital assistant utilizing carry is, is that all a way to say you're basically you're enabling a smarter a smarter agent that that fits the real world business processes yeah exactly yeah and i think it's i mean the advantage of it is you know we're not stopping people from building on 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 any blockchain networks but it's at the same time we're not reliant on that as well so um yeah, I mean, really, the trust, trusted digital assistant. If I could describe it in a in a short sentence, I'd call it a, a an API plugin gateway into a dynamic data economy. So, whereas today uh, on the internet you'd have your yeah, you know a browser is really your way into the internet, um, you know the way for individual uh, citizens to get into a, a, a into the decentralized dynamic data economy is really through this uh, this component on your mobile device um, yeah so you can think of it as a personal browser if you like <laughs> yeah which, which is being open source and which if I'm um, I don't know if I'm the good health pass or if I'm whatever ecosystem solution I, I could choose to incorporate this into my my stack which um, gives you kind of all of the context and all of the other benefits that you need to have. Uh, if, if I really need to worry about uh, privacy, I really need to worry about user experience. Uh, and and the, uh, this could really fuel a lot of these benefits that we talk about every day in SSI. Absolutely. And I think that there's three kind of main domains that you really need to decentralize. And one is obviously the decentralized key management. The other is decentralized semantics. And then the last one is decentralized governance. Um, and I think the governance piece is, uh, is maybe where Kerry can really help um, because, because you're not locked into those networks necessarily. I think that can really help to decentralize governance um, in that, you know, for instance, if I was a, uh, if I wanted to get on a, uh, if I'm at border control at the UK or China or any of those, uh, you know, different countries, um, you can't expect them to all be using the same network. Um, and I think that by, by kind of introducing Kerry, it kind of gets you out of those potential network um, lock-in issues. So that's when we when we say decentralized governance. I think that's kind of that sits in that sort of space. So you, you've you've chosen the trust over IP as kind of a good a good home to to conduct certain work with the community. Do, do you mind describing what's going on right now within the trust over IP inside the inputs and semantics working group? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, you can I guess you can think of the inputs and semantics working group as kind of the innovation hub of of trust over IP um, because you know we're not uh, you know you don't have to be a, a an identity network that's a, an SSI identity network if you're coming into into the space and you have an identity solution of of whatever whatever kind 
you know, we can look at that into the inputs and semantics group and uh, try and, you know, knit together, knit it into a kind of a, a proof of concept or a pilot or something like that without disrupting some of the, the businesses that are already uh, developing strong SSI solutions uh, within the, the uh, um, within the dual stack as it stands. I think there's a little bit more freedom to, uh, for people to really, uh, um, you know, work on brand new solutions in the inputs and semantics working group. Yeah. Is it a lot more new solutions or do you see a mix of, um, that, that, that's what we see a lot too, is just there, there's so many solutions that exist in the market today. Like I'm sure you could, you could talk about so many things that go on in pharma, for example. And it's like where you're, you're working on um, helping entrepreneurs or helping new ecosystems, but is it a mix of both that kind of come through there? It's to totally a mix of both. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you, you'll get um, people that want to set up new ecosystems, uh, but maybe uh, are working with legacy, sometimes with some legacy solutions, and they want to figure out how to deconstruct what they've done to make it more decentralized. All of that sort of stuff that, that can come into the inputs and semantics group. Um, and at the, at, at the same time, we're also looking at kind of new um, you know, new new solutions like semantic containers. Uh, you know, some of the uh, some of the transient uh, portability solutions. Um, they can also fit into inputs and semantics, and we can see how we can uh, we can kind of work them into uh, you know into moving data around in a safe and secure manner. Yeah, it's a, it's such a cool space. And then um, you guys obviously have a. I, I was looking into there's task forces on storage and portability, like you just said, there's pri privacy and risk and notice and consent. It's just, uh, um, I, I, I guess there's, there's so many things that need to be thought of from the user experience standpoint or from the, from the business case standpoint, right? To, to figure out kind of uh, what to show, what not to show, how certain functions should work and you're able to kind of absorb that and build it into the models. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's probably one area that, uh, that, that needs strengthening up a little bit, I think, is the user experience side of things. There is a human experience uh, working group that is set up at, at Trust Over IP. It's not housed in the inputs and semantics group, but it's a very new group. So I don't think they're they're totally up and running yet. Um, but yeah, that'll be interesting to see what comes out of that out of that, that task force. You were talking about how um, user experience is such a big consideration. Uh, in, inside kind of the centralized identity and these things. And so ju just a simple example of displaying a date properly, which by the way, being in Canada, it happens, right? Uh, you, you write it in one format if it's in English and another format if it's in French. And so when you talk about actually, and this is just a simple example, right? And there's so much more and I um, would love to hear more about how you've thought about just general uh, user experience overall, but it seems like the, the the structure that you're building and bringing up is really uh, really enables a lot of contextualization to happen inside of the actual wallets and apps and whatever whatever systems are being used by end users. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the semantics part is really is really interesting. Um, I think we've stumbled across a really nice architecture in that. Um, you know whether it doesn't matter what language you, you want uh, your credential to resolve in or your predefined entries you know they can all be resolving in in your mother tongue um uh, and and because everything in 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 the in oca is a, is a is a layer 
you know, depending on, on, on the country that you're in, uh, you're just swapping in a, a layer here and there rather than rebuilding the entire schema structure. So actually, uh, you being a Canadian, you'll be interested in this when, so I'm, I've been building a, a COVID-19 vaccination uh, specification for, uh, for the COVID-19 credentials initiative group, uh, which is a, it's an OCA uh, formatted spreadsheet, if you like. And uh, I showed it to the Canadian guys and uh, I had obviously, uh, you know, French Canadian, French English as, as some overlays. And they said, could you build some overlays for the, um, the native communities in Canada, like, you know, the uh, Inuit and all that sort of stuff. And I said, yeah, I think so. <laughs> so I actually uh, Googled Inuit because I have no idea. I've never seen the language before. And it kind of almost looks like uh, hieroglyphics or something. And I thought, I don't think this is a UTF-8, <laughs> but uh, interestingly, um, with overlays capture architecture, the, the character set encoding is actually a separate layer altogether. So for, a, a, for an interesting character set like, uh, it, like they use, for the Inuits use, um, you know, you can just change the, uh, the, the character set encoding overlay. Uh, and then re rebuild all the human readable labels and all the predefined entries and everything in their language. And then the idea is that when you resolve that on your mobile phone as a, it comes through as a form, then uh, the whole form can be uh, structured in their language. So it's really great for, um, you, know, uh, you know, if you're traveling and, uh, and, and you don't speak a language, you know, you can enter everything in your own language, but then the guy at border control uh, might just know Russian or something, then all you have to do is hit a little scroll down at the top from English to Russian and the whole uh, credential form changes into their language. So it's a, it's, it's a really cool architecture. We, yeah, we're super proud of it. Yeah, I think um, it's definitely, uh, won't lie, it was heavy the first time I started looking into it, just there are so many layers, but I think the fact that you've been able to componentize it like that, um, really makes it easy to swap in, swap in, swap out what, what you're trying to do based on your use case. And I guess another one, I don't know if it would be kind of the masking kind of layer, but um, if we're talking about selective disclosure or privacy and stuff like that, uh, there, there's another layer in there that kind of addresses that too, right? Yeah. I mean, if you look at kind of data, data management almost as a three-step process from data collection, data capture, data exchange, um, that data capture, the second step is really important because that's where you kind of rebuild the semantics uh, for the data exchange so that when it's, it's kind of gone out the other end, if you like, it's all beautiful for uh, machine learning, etc. Um, and some of the overlays that you use in that second stage, the capture stage, are really things like, um, you know, your human readable labels, your predefined entries, your formats. Some of the overlays that you might use at the exchange side might differ. So that's what we're looking at at the moment. So when you talk about a masking overlay, that's kind of a, some additional processing on maybe some, some attributes that you flagged in the schema base. And some of that masking might be more suited for the data exchange side rather than the data capture side as a kind of a secondary process. So, um, so we're, we're kind of looking into all those nuances at the moment. I think that OCA has uh, enough flexibility to do, uh, really, um, you know, go very granular on, on which overlays are used at what, what stage of the data lifecycle, if that makes sense. 
It makes sense. And you mentioned earlier when we were talking about carry, carry being um, interesting for governance because you're kind of not locked into a specific uh, utility, but thinking about just governance around privacy, governance around what, whatever needs to go into um, kind of an ecosystem solution. This is where ecosystem builders would be able to integrate uh, this architecture and to be able to create the rule set based on based on this, right? Absolutely, yeah. And actually, the the, the, the privacy folks is almost a totally different community themselves. Uh, so, um, you know, when, when I talk about the master mouse model, which is uh, kind of the, uh, our vision of a dynamic data economy, it's what we talk about is really the data layer, um, but there's actually an entirely new layer that goes on top of that, which is the jurisdictional layer. So for instance, you know, is a company, um, are they, um, you know, are they complying, are they, sorry, are they compliant to ju jurisdictional law to be able to operate within that sort of economy? Uh, you know, what, when, when you talk about services, um, you know, what are, are those, are, are those services uh, authenticated by a, a jurisdictional authority? Uh, that they're allowed to perform those services. So those sorts of legal things are almost like a, a, a different uh, uh, ecosystem altogether. And when I was talking about the trusted digital assistant, um, you know, being that's really where you'd have APIs from that kind of jurisdictional layer plugging into your API, into your trusted digital assistant, so that you know that when you're looking for certain services, you know that they're already uh, they're already legal and they're they're they've been authorized uh, properly. Yeah, it's, it, it shouldn't obviously be up to the human being to uh, you know. Uh, decide whether some something's authorized or not. That that's a, a kind of a legal component. Yeah. Yeah. So so in in a in a COVID credentials or, or a vaccination credentials use case, this is where again, based on the jurisdiction you're in, you don't want to allow anyone to do anyone and breach privacy and stuff like that. It's just it's all built into the system, based yeah, on the jurisdiction. Exactly. If if I'm in uh, if I'm in Canada or in a specific province in Canada versus if I'm in a US state or if I'm in France or, or wherever you could have this built right in. Yep, exactly. Yep. Um, what other use cases do you find quite interesting of what you're seeing now? You obviously came came from the, the media or music space, uh, a lot of experience yeah. in pharma. You, you've been spending a lot of time with the COVID projects. Uh, what do you find super interesting or where are you spending your most time right now? Yeah, I, well, there's a couple, a couple of interesting things that we're looking into. So, uh, one of the one of the projects that we built at the Human Colossus Foundation was a digital immunization passport, but we we haven't pushed it that hard because it's really working on brand new technologies that are not standards yet. Uh, so I think there's almost going to be a second wave of digital immunization passports. There'll be the first wave that goes out. They might come across a few issues with. Uh, with governance and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we're kind of sitting in, I think, in the next generation of, of immunization passports. And one of the interesting things in that, in, in that solution was trying to um, cryptographically link verifiable credentials to semantic containers. Um, so the idea being that, um, you know, really our view of a credential is a credential should allow you to do something. So, uh, you know, when you have a credential on your mobile phone, you can show it to uh, border control. They can kind of see, oh, you've got a green tick mark. 
you're good to go. But all of the kind of the sensitive data that sits behind that, uh, your sensitive health information, um, we, we've been storing that in, a, in what we call a semantic container. Uh, where you know the the holder of the data can give access to that container using a, a token, um, and there is obviously a cryptographic link between the container and the credential. And what's interesting with that is you, you know the credential is great for saying uh, yes, this data has come from an authentic source, uh, and so basically you by cryptographically tying that credential to the container, you can say anything in that container has been authenticated by me. Uh, so, and that has some interesting properties. So when you're talking about the music industry, I'm thinking, well, you know, for music publishers, it could be really interesting. So, you know, they've always had trouble with, uh, you know, people uh, copying MP3s and giving it to their friends. And, you know, the artist doesn't make any money. If you put a, a, an MP3 in a, in a container, uh, and you've got a verifiable credential saying, yes, this, uh, this container has been uh, authenticated by uh, ACDC or wh whoever the band is, um, then you can kind of, you can, track, you can track it using these decentralized technologies really well. Um, so that if, if, if anybody is, is, is accessing that MP3, firstly, they need a token from, the, from, let's say, the publisher acting on behalf of the band. That would probably be a good way to do it. Um, but there's always a provenance chain, uh, you know, back to uh, where it went, uh, sorry, where it came from. And there's an interesting technology we've been looking at called digital watermarking, uh, which uh, is a way that you basically, it just changes the composition a little bit of the, of the digital asset within the container. So that if, uh, if, it's, if somebody leaks that for any reason without uh, proper authorization to do it, you can actually track who, who leaked it. Uh, so that's super cool. It's kind of, it's a bit of a, a, more of a kind of a defensive approach to data sharing. Um, but I think with all these things, you know, the more protection you can have, the better, really. So that's just another method that we're looking at of, uh, of how to stop illegal data sharing. Is... Um... Is a good analogy like a credential is kind of like a recipe item, but with a, a semantic container, this that's the meal. Like you're able to put everything in together. You could take it from different places and just have it as its own package. Exactly. Yeah, you can think of it exactly that. Uh, so it's like a, a bundle of a bundle of information. So it could be you know uh, usage policy plus uh, you know a huge audio file plus a, a couple of um, uh, attachments. Uh, that can all be put into a container. And then all the credential is really saying is, uh, it, you know, it's saying uh, that everything in that container is authentic. Uh, you can take a, a cryptographic hash of the contents of the container and also a cryptographic hash of the, of the data capture structure that was used to capture that data. So that if either of those two ha uh, items changes, the hashes uh, the hash basically breaks, and then the, the credential is automatically nulled, if you like. So yeah, we, we think of we, we think of it. You know, when you have like a, 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 a UPS package or something like that, is that you know um, the the package is the container, and the thing that you've signed signed uh, to get the package that's your credential, um, and that's your way of authenticating that uh, that it's yours. Super cool. under your control. Yeah. So, so all of this work and thinking and, and pilots and stuff, um, you, you're bringing uh, all this to the trust over IP. You, you seem to be working with sovereign uh, 
is it more specifically on, on the UX or guardianship side side of things? And then you're also involved with Cantera. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, in, in all of those communities to in varying capacities. Um, so I work with, uh, you know, the, my data community, uh, are very much about, uh, you know, uh, personal data. Um, so I set up the, um, the, my data health thematic group over there. Um, so it's really about, you know, um, uh, making sure that uh, that health data is is treated properly throughout the data lifecycle. Uh, that's one thing I do. The COVID COVID nineteen credentials initiative CCI. Uh, I run the uh, the schema task force there. So we're basically creating schema specifications for COVID nineteen tests, uh, test reports. Um, test certificates, uh, vaccine reports, vaccine certificates, those sorts of things. Um, at Sovereign, I lead the communications team. Uh, yeah, so uh, that's, uh, I don't know how I got lumped into that, but uh, I still do that. So uh, uh, whenever you hear, whenever you see blog posts going out from Sovereign, it's, it's usually pulled into our group and we vet it and make sure that it's, it's uh, kind of accurate and supportive of the community. Uh, yeah, and then Kantara. So Kantara, um, I work very closely with the notice and consent group over there. Uh, notice and consent is totally not my expertise, um, but I'm. Uh, but I know the, how important uh, that piece is to the whole ecosystem. So I'm trying my best to learn uh, as much as I can. And there's some amazing people in that space who have as much knowledge in their space as I do in semantics. So, uh, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm totally in awe of those guys as well. So, <laughs> yeah, the the different communities advocating for um, just um, trusted data or self-sovereign identity or decentralized identity, however, however you call it, I think everyone has the same kind of ethos of, of what we're trying to do. And it's just the community is amazing. Like everyone just is yeah. trying to help each other out. Everyone's trying to give. Um, it's honestly we're we're quite fortunate to work with these types of people every day. It's just it's amazing. It's very motivating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, you're dealing with people that have, uh, you know, 25 years of identity experience and 25 years of, uh, of consent and getting these people to the same table and agreeing on, on what the, what a dynamic data economy should look like. And yeah, just totally blown away by the, by the level of knowledge. So I guess to, to, to close, how, how could, where could you use help? How could people help you just to keep pushing the dynamic data economy forward and, and all these things forward? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's very much a, a cross-community effort, really. Um, I mean, the Human Colossus Foundation is is pretty much uh, as, um, as agnostic uh, as you like. Uh, we don't really have an agenda. Uh, you know, we talk to all the communities and uh, we really try and uh, make sure that everybody has a as a space at the dinner table to put their objectives forward. So for the, for the good of the economy. Um, yeah, so I, I, moving forward, uh, if anybody's really interested in, in this space, um, I would suggest that uh, Trust Over IP, the Inputs and Semantics Working Group is a great place to join. Um, you'll get a really uh, very, very broad uh, perspective on, on, on the economy from a lot of uh, um, a lot of uh, specialists uh, all working together. So for, you know, a quick fix on uh, on a, a lot of information, that's a great place to go. Um, 
uh, at, at Trust over IP on, on kind of looking at the dual stack. There's also space for governance, uh, obviously across the governance stack and also new technologies in the technology stack. Um, so there's, you know, I, I think Trust over IP is, is, is a great space uh, to join. Um, I think when it was when it when it was first set up, there was always um, you know there were a few murmurings that this is just a sovereign rebranded, but it's actually much 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 broader than that. So, sovereign is 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 a utility for self sovereign identity, and um, and will always probably be be seen as the as the uh, the genesis point of that whole. Uh, ecosystem, but trust over IP really goes much broader than that. It's self-sovereign identity, but it's also decentralized consent, uh, semantics, uh, ecosystems. Um, you know, it's a it's a much broader space. Um, and and the reason I say that is because uh, you know, for anybody that is um, you know. Uh, uneasy about SSI or have any doubts about it that, um, you know, just go into trust over IP and there will be a space for your expertise for sure. Yeah. Agreed. Well, th thank you, Paul, very much for doing this with me. It was a, a great conversation and uh, I'm sure people are going to find this quite interesting and want to go a little deeper into to the stack that you guys are bringing forward. I know uh, this is an area that, that I'm quite interested in going a lot deeper in. So thank you for doing this. No, pleasure. Th thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. To stay up to speed with future episode releases, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever channel you're listening to it right now. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to me directly. You can find me online. I'm quite active on LinkedIn and Twitter, so I look forward to hearing from you. See you all next time.